Score, the podcast. The only show taking you inside the studios of the world's most celebrated composers and musical storytellers. Presented by Spitfire Audio. Kenny Holmes. Robert Kraft, and I would like to note that we are both, Kenny, you and me, honoring the fine teams of Los Angeles today. Carol, I think we need to get you like the galaxy soccer hat to kind of complete it. Excuse me, LAFC, come on. LAFC. If you're listening only, we're wearing Rams and Dodgers hats, so it's it's... It's an L.A. day here on Score the Podcast and um, presented by Spitfire Audio. And we're very excited about our guest, who is not an L.A. guy. Yeah. I won't be surprised if he's wearing a Yankees or a Mets hat, maybe. Uh, We're talking about Oscar-nominated and Emmy Award-winning composer Carter Burwell. You know his music from all of the Coen's Brothers movies, all the way back from Coen's, the Coen Brother movies, uh, all the way back from the beginning. I think we're even Galaxy and Coen's. Please continue. There you go. Um, and a list of other in- incredible movies, and uh, he also scores the the morning show on uh, Apple TV Plus, mm-hmm. which has got great recognition and is coming back for a second season. And um, he's got a new movie coming out with uh, Denzel Washington and uh, your girl Fran. Yeah, and he, it's opening the New York Film Festival, which is a great slot for it. It's also interesting because I don't know if Carter has scored a cohen brother movie this one is yeah. only one brother joel um for reasons that we may find and what, out and we didn't say what it is the tragedy of macbeth the tragedy so he's of going macbeth, exactly. on us so uh, um so we're excited to talk with carter i know that uh when we were putting together the documentary score um we made a trip to new york and we were trying to get carter in but he doesn't live in the city and if you don't have a car and you have all this gear and you're trying to get to Long Island, it's it's not an easy task. Um, so we, we tried really hard to get him in the dock and we didn't uh, we weren't able to make that happen. So I'm definitely excited to talk with him and you you guys go way back. So it'll be a nice catch up moment for oh, us. Oh yeah, we've worked together. We actually went to school together. So I'm looking forward to it. Oh, that's right. He's a super interesting composer. Really yeah. interesting and unique. With well, the unique backstory which i actually am looking forward to asking him about well we'll get to that in just a bit but as always before we get to our guests we want to thank our sponsor spitfire audio maker of orchestral sample libraries for film composers whether you're just starting out or a seasoned professional spitfire has so many sounds you will love yeah and they're they're releasing new libraries pretty much i guess guess it's every month uh with the free lab series which i always download because why not get a cool free sound from Spitfire? But you can get an entire orchestra for free in their BBC Symphony Orchestra Discover Edition, which of course I have and use. It's so sweet. Um, and and not only the Lab Series, they've been coming out with a ton of new packages, uh, you know, purchasable packages, uh, including the one today that we're going to play you a demo of the Hammers package. Now, this one is developed and produced in collaboration with composer Charlie Klauser, uh, who's known for his music in Saw, Resident Evil Extinction, and he was a Nine Inch Nails keyboardist Mm -hmm. um, for a while there. Uh, Hammers features more than 1,000 sounds, including detailed hits, ensembles, over 800 live performance loops, including genre-bending warps, 
all captured and processed to be broadcast ready. And with this new array of explosive drums inspired by Charlie's extensive experience in rock and industrial production and crafted for modern cinematic uses, composers will have a uniquely powerful tool for creating hard-hitting rhythm. So we're going to play you a cue from that. This package is sweet. There's the drum hits in there. It's You can really ramp some stuff up with uh, some of these sounds. So I have the feeling forward that, to that. Uh, amazingly enough, you could probably just load this package and score an entire horror film. I mean, the only thing that's missing yeah. are the screams. There might even be some screams in there. And the best That'll come part, from the audience if you do your job. <laughs> you're right. The best, Thank you very much. The best part about it is that uh, if you're listening to Score the Podcast right now, you can get this package 25% off with your first purchase of any Spitfire audio product with promo code SCORE2021. Should I say that again? SCORE2021. Please do. 2021. And uh, don't Noi. forget to do that as soon as possible. Noice. We never know when the packages are. <laughs> I'm sorry. We never know when the promo code is going to expire. So use it while you can. Save 25%. I know one of our listeners sent us a note. He bought like, it was his first Spitfire order. He bought like 20 packages and just saved a bundle. So if you can use it while you can, take advantage of it. And again, listen for that demo cue of Hammer's. Uh, today after the show i want to ask to composer carol do yeah. you use spitfire i can't remember all the you time were, you are you're a devoted spitfire time. user right i am yeah, yeah i one of my go-to piano sounds um and i i record piano all the time one of my go-to piano sounds is a mix of something from contact and the spitfire audio labs soft piano and there's a nice. full version of it too, but it's it's worth it. And I mean, it's free. The labs version is free, so how you know there's nothing better than that. But how could you not use it? No, yeah. how could you not? Yeah, so definitely check it out, please. Um, yeah, we love Spitfire. Shout out to them for uh, partnering up with us and and sticking with us for so many years. And they put out such great stuff. Um, all right, before we get to Carter, I wanted to bring up a conversation. Uh, a couple of months ago, I was on Twitter, and I was uh, having a conversation with a music supervisor, and he had posted that he was fed up with trailer music not representing the music of the film. And I thought, this is a really interesting subject, right? Because trailers come out. We've seen the YouTube video mocking how trailers are created. Get a... Uh, acapella version of an old song sung slowly and a couple of drum hits here and and then you have some some random trailer music and then the name of the film and then you go watch it and it's Hans Zimmer or you know Pinar Toprak's music and it's not what you heard in the trailer and it got me thinking is that even possible is it possible for a composer to score the trailer oftentimes the trailers are getting cut and created while the composer's still working, um, sometimes they want to use a song. Um, and I was wondering, Robert, from your perspective, does the composer ever want to score the trailer? Does this come up um, from when you're when you're booking a composer? Has has that ever come up in your history? Well, first of all, can you imagine a composer saying, "I'm going to be out of time, out of energy, out of ideas. The deadline's approaching." Can I please have another assignment to work with the 
marketing department on making the commercial for the movie. No composer wants to touch that. And as you said very accurately, the timelines are completely different. Sometimes you put a sizzle reel together or a the first trailer or what's called a teaser a year before the movie comes out, six months before the movie comes out. Nobody's approved music. The composer doesn't know exactly what the vibe of his score is. The advertising department just needs to sell the idea of the movie. So very, very rarely does a composer get involved or want to get involved. Same same with songs. I mean, you can have, and it's gone horribly wrong where you have a great band writing songs for a movie or a great artist, and then they put Katrina and the waves walking on sunshine in the trailer. <laughs> and you think, wait a minute, we've just paid a band a fortune for an original song score. And yet the advertising department says, that's cool, but we need this to sell the trailer. So very, very different agendas. Um, and before we started today's show, you mentioned one where it actually is happening. Yeah, it just happened. And it was it was interesting because I was thinking about bringing this up anyway. And then just a couple of days ago, the Dune trailer comes out. Some people are saying, that's Hans's music. Other people are saying, it's a trailer. It's not Hans's music. And then Water Tower Music releases the cue, and it is Hans's music in the trailer. And I'm wondering if this is just, they're taking advantage of the fact that the movie was shelved, and it was done, and the score is done. And I wonder if, you know, 007... Uh, no Time to Die will probably do the same thing. The Billie Eilish song has been out for a year, and they're able to utilize this stuff because of this funky COVID timeline. But is this a one-off that Hans's music is in a trailer that you can remember? I was trying to think, and uh, I, I couldn't remember I, anything specific. I think you're right, and I think your analysis of why is correct in that now the timelines have converged. The music is completely done. The movie is completely done. The music clearly has a vibe that they want to sell the film that it's appropriate. And so why don't we take a cue from the film and use it in the trailer? It's very rare. I can tell you just before we get to Carter of an experience I had that's the exact opposite of what you're describing. We were working on a hmm. wonderful motion picture called Abraham Lincoln and the Vampire Hunters, often called Abraham Lincoln and the Umpire Hunters. Um, we <laughs> Henry Jackman. Yes. And uh, I was working with Henry. Uh, he was on, I would think, his third version of the score, because for all of you composers out there, when a movie isn't entirely sure what it is, the composer inherits the assignment of, could you write a whole different approach to the music and maybe that will help us and henry and i were just aware that they were really struggling to get the movie's tone correct and he let's try acoustic let's try electronic let's try so we were kind of at a loss because the movie was in a little bit of a pickle and the trailer needed to get made and come out and so the mm. marketing department of the studio released a new trailer for Abe Lincoln and the Umpire Hunters, and it was a Nine Inch Nails song that they put in the trailer, which was a good idea and had the right 
vibe that I think we were looking for. And suddenly, the score that wasn't correct at that point became clear. Wait, let's go down the like total industrial prog rock, hard rock vibe for the entire score. Instead of a couple cues, which Henry had already... Let's just make the whole thing kind of slamming, anvil sounds, dark synth stuff, like this Nine Inch Nails song. And that's the way wow. the score evolved, which was the result of somebody in the deep in the marketing department suggesting a Nine Inch Nails song for the trailer. I don't know of a lot of episodes like that where the trailer... That's crazy. We were at a loss. It, it was totally inspired, and they were searching for something, and yeah. Bob from marketing now has that poster on his living room wall, and he's like... Actually, Bob nails, from baby. marketing has that poster on his living room wall, but no one has ever told him, you know, dude, that you're responsible for the sound of the score, because we, Henry and I, <laughs> at some screening, leaned over each other after... They played the trailer like, hey, everybody should see this before we screen the movie again. Just a group of filmmakers. And Henry and I looked at each other like, that's cool. Maybe we should try it. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, I, I did want to point out, too, that when we were uh, talking with Elliot Goldenthal and we were talking about Batman Forever and the marketing, they had a the McDonald's commercial that we had that played in our show it uses Danny Elfman's Batman theme and it's Val Kilmer on the screen because he didn't have the music available to them yet or they didn't, it wasn't presented to the McDonald's, what, whoever cut that commercial. It's really weird to see Val Kilmer as Batman and you hear Michael Keaton's Batman theme. And that threw me off because I hadn't heard that in years. And when I was pulling that up, I'm like, wait a second. So that's another example of like, marketing stuff being done before the score and they're already pushing the movie. Um, but anyway, regardless Hans Zimmer's Dune track, um, and there may be more than one, but the one that I heard Paul's dream, I can't wait. Yeah. It sounds amazing. Amazing. Um, so a lot of stuff to be excited about. And the other thing too, is trailer music gives a lot of people work. Um, there's a lot of composers working on trailer music. So, you know, if there was a way for them to maybe get the theme or the motif to use in the trailer just to kind of get the vibe, that would be sweet. But I don't, I was just trying to think, like, how would that ever work? You hear all these horror stories about timelines. Yeah. So interesting. Well, thanks for clearing that up. Uh, I think we're good to go. We're going to take a break. And then coming up after the break, joining us from Long Island, Carter Burwell. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hey guys, it's Kenny. Back to the show in just a second. If you like Score the Podcast, you're going to want to check out More Score. More Score already has hours of content waiting for you. You can listen to interviews with composers Zach Robinson and Leo Bierenberg of Cobra Kai and Carlos Rafael Rivera, the maestro behind the Queen's Gambit. Plus, we've done a sit-down with the founders of Spitfire Audio, Christian Henson and Paul Thompson, who share why not even an erupting volcano could stop them from launching the business. It's a pretty crazy story. More Score is our new Patreon show for Score Superfans. And if you don't know what Patreon is, well, it's a website and an app that lets fans crowdfund the type of extra content you want. And with Patreon, you can listen or watch right on the app. It's really easy. And the best part about More Score, it's year round, just like you asked for, no more off season. Just go to patreon.com slash more score or download the Patreon app 
and search more score. We'll see you over there. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, this is John Amman. You're listening to Score the Podcast. And now let's go back to the show. Welcome back to Score the Podcast presented by Spitfire Audio. We are thrilled about our guest today. He's an Emmy-winning composer. He scored films such as Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, Carol, The Twilight yes. Saga, and 16 Coen Brothers films, including Fargo, The Big Lebowski, No Country for Old Men, and the most recent, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. He's also the maestro behind Apple's series The Morning Show and Netflix's Space Force. Please welcome Carter Burwell to the show. It's our studio audience, and I just realized... Um, that when you said Carol and Carol said yes, of course, we have to distinguish that Carter scored the magnificent film Carol. One of my favorites. I rewatched in my in my deep dive. And speaking of composer Carol, Carol, would you honor us by singing an A four forty just to tune us up? A hey. Is that it? Yeah. <laughs> that wasn't no? it. Can he sing as an A four forty? There it is. And- <laughs> no, that we're gonna. The audience is dropping oh, off. God. Carter, are you, you're an East Coast guy, right? You're you're joining us from New York. Yes, I'm actually um, at the end of Long Island at the moment. Yep, that's right, New York. That's nice. Oh, are you how Mon- brutal! Montauk or yeah, I'm, I'm in Amagansett, the next town in, and uh, yeah, I like to say I'm um, as far from the industry as I can be without being in the ocean. Uh, <laughs> <that's> funny, <laughs> I like that, and it's also. Besides being beautiful, a historic location for artists. Yes, absolutely. Pollock. That's that's right. Yeah. Um, Do you feel inspired out there? Uh, I do. It's just, it's very beautiful and... um, Sometimes you know, awe-inspiringly beautiful and, uh, and and also very peaceful. I, I love it. Tell me, do you... Um, first of all, it's great to see you. It's been a it's while. good to see you. I know it has been a while. It's been a while. And um, you may need to remind me also, because I've never been entirely clear. Some people have said that we were classmates, and I don't know if that was entirely accurate. What What year were you? 1976. 77. So not ah, quite classmates. You're a young man. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> tell, me what it, tell me what it's I'm, like. I'm feeling dumb in this room right now with all these Harvard guys. Should I leave uh, right now? Or? And um, in fact, I'm going to just use this opportunity since Carter and I don't get enough chance to talk. Will you remind me? Um, for our audience, Carter and I attended the same illustrious institution. I was not allowed in the music department. Um, something I now am blessed by sharing. Carter, were you a music major? <laughs> no, no, I wasn't. And um, I only even really became interested in, in music my last year there and, and managed to, I found out they had an electronic music studio in the sort of the attic of the music department, which otherwise was just very 
1970s classical music oriented, you know, which meant serial composers like Milton Babbitt and stuff, um, which was not of interest to me. But the electronic music studio was of interest. And I, and the guy who ran it, um, Ivan Cherepnin, was nice enough to let me use it, give me a key. And uh, I spent a lot of time um, up there, I have to say. Can you tell me, because I will never know otherwise, what was in that studio and <laughs> there was something right there and I never knew it. What Was it some gear that's it was stuff prized? Well, it was stuff that um, Ivan really put together himself. His brother, Serge Trepin, actually made synthesizers called a, a, a brand called the Serge Synthesizer. So he had that there. He had a, a Buchla and a lot of tape machines and then weird stuff that that only Yvonne would have like a parabolic mic that he would stick out the window to pick up. We'd like basically spy on people walking by outside <laughs> and take those conversations and send them into tape loops. And we basically spend a whole, maybe an hour setting up a system. And then we'd spend another hour sitting and listening to the system, um, listening to the, how the people outside were, were, were controlling what was in our room and um, that kind of thing. It was very much a, a mindset about what constitutes music. Do you think that experience launched you into a kind of pivot into music? It, Yeah, it really did contribute to it. That, that was that was one uh, pivotal experience, uh, you know, seeing Yvonne do that. And I just thought, wow, the fact that he knew where to plug that cable in was just the sexiest thing I've ever seen. And I thought, well, I want to know how to do that. And then the other thing was, um, I saw that same year, my last year at Harvard, saw Iggy Pop perform at the um, Harvard Square Theater with, um, I think Blondie was opening for them, and David Bowie was playing piano for him, and it was just the most exciting thing I'd ever seen, and I thought, and I was planning at that time to go to architecture school, and I just thought, I think I could take a year off and maybe just go to New York and try music, um, and that's what I did. That's amazing. What a year, too. 77, 78. It was a good total, year. Total punk, uh, birth of punk, kind of hip-hop about to show up. Where did you live in Manhattan? Well, it wasn't. I'd also like to say you'd go to, you could go to CBGBs and you might see um, Philip Glass play, too. You know, like oh. Talking Heads, like at the Poetry Project, and all these different people, Patti Smith, Steve Reich. And punk, yeah, it was all happening, and there was a dissolution of borders that um, that was very important for for me. Uh, I have to say. Um, so, you asked where I lived. Yeah, um, I was. Let me see. All over the place. I think you know. I uh, I lived like a musician, so I was like moving around. I would sometimes not be in New York. I, I went to Manchester for a month to record a record for Factory. Um, records and i was also being my day job was i was an animator so i went to tokyo for a few months to work on an anime there i was gonna say this was right around the time your famous uh the blockbuster help i'm being crushed to death by a black rectangle came out and th this is a can you explain because that's your first credit on imdb and it's not as a composer <laughs> that's right it's a hand-drawn animated film that i did actually in in college uh but went and it went around to the festivals and things uh the animation festivals uh so yeah i did yeah you know, let's say i did a variety of things <laughs> is there room for help on being crushed to death by a black black rectangle 
two? <laughs> Can we expect to see that? Yeah, this is the, the era of bringing things back. I know. I, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, I miss animation, but I'm sure I'm not telling you something you don't already know if I say it takes a lot of time and patience, and uh, I'm not sure that I have those things today. Did you score that film as well? I did. I played piano uh, to score it, played a sort of improv piano score to it. Yeah. Is it online anywhere? I was trying to find it. No, you know, it's I've got a 16 millimeter print of it, and I do sometimes think, oh, I got to digitize that, but I just haven't gotten around to it. Um, I know Museum of Modern Art has it in the collection, but um, I don't. But I don't think it makes it out very often. After that experience, did you? have any sort of thought of like i can continue on in animation because oh yeah pretty soon after it was just a few years after you you got your first composing gig but was was animation the 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 vision at that point it was what i was doing i've never uh, to this day i still don't really feel like i have a career in mind uh but (laughs) i uh but i was you know i was i was doing animation that's right i would do uh either independent hand-drawn animation get gigs wherever you could like at um children's television workshop or whatever and uh and do i i was doing computer animation which was a relatively new thing at the time uh i had done a learned how to do it basically on my own but also at the mit media lab and uh that was you know could always find a a job doing that because there were just so few people doing it today they're tens, hundreds of thousands of people do it. But then you could really literally know everyone who did it. There were like dozens of people in the world. So um, I did that too. And uh, that's what I did when I went to Tokyo. I was basically their 3D computer animator guy. Um, were you always techie um, as a kid or were you musical? <laughs> like what was your childhood like? Well, I was, I guess, techie, but... What I mean? What tick did, did we have when I was a kid? <laughs> it was, yeah, yeah. I, um, yeah, you know, cassette recorders and things like that. But um, yeah, I, I my way into music honestly was sort of um, the tech door. That's why I went to the electronic music studio at um, at Harvard instead of through the main door of uh, the music department. I figured I don't know anything about music, but I can. I know a little bit of electronics. I know a little bit about computers, and figured that would sort of helped me to get into it i really like the fact that i'm learning in some ways why one reason why not only are your scores really original and different from a kind of traditional approach in many ways but hearing you say you're still looking for your career that you have a background in animation that you started in this electronic music lab None of these point to a very traditional route into music or film scoring, which in some ways we've been blessed with the result, which is a really unorthodox, Carter, really unorthodox approach to to film scoring, which is makes you unique and clearly has been the basis of why you've done so many pictures. I think 90 is the number. I made this note um, I was, you know, I've had, when, when we do something like this, I go back and just listen as much as I can. The first thing that struck me about the scores was how much space is in them. I, I don't know another word. You nod. Why? Yeah, you well, I mean, no, but I, I agree. And, and indeed, whenever we spot a film, you know, when we're talking about where music should go, um, I'm the first person in the room to say, I don't think we need music there. 
you know, I do, I do tend to think that feature films are overscored, that directors, producers, executives tend to underestimate their audience and they want to make sure nobody misses, you know, a piece of information. So they like hammer at home and I prefer to do the opposite. That's In true. some ways, that's one of the hallmarks of what you've brought to film scoring too, which is I'm not going to manipulate you with an on the nose here's the spot, here's the, the cue, here's how you should feel. It You better it be rema- sad now. Yeah, it <laughs> remains, there's space, and I thought, this is, even in the um, arrangements, it's not this kind of wall-to-wall thick arrangement. You hear the elements, you hear a, a bass or, or a clarinet or, you know, a whistle or an odd thing, and I just thought that's unique. Well, you know, it has to be said that uh, you know, most of those 90 films are independent films without orchestral budgets, right? Mm. So, um, you know, I've talked to Tom Newman about this. You know, we both agree that orchestrating for the small, inexpensive films is a lot more fulfilling in a way because you really, like you say, every instrument you write for, you're going to hear them. It's not like this person sitting next to three other people who are all playing the same note. Or 30. And, uh, yeah, or 30. And... um so it makes the orchestration a lot more challenging, but more fulfilling. And I think that you also get something special from the musicians when they know they can't hide. They're like, you know, you were going to hear them. So you really, I mean, the benefit of just listening to some of these scores and hearing virtually every note, it isn't a big pad of, of strings. I never thought it was budget related, though everything is. <laughs> um, but... And it's funny, you're interviewed. I saw one interview where uh, some newsman asked you, what's the first thing that you have to tackle on a film score? And you said, well, I have to understand the budget. And he laughed. <laughs> what? The budget? Come on. I mean, and you said exactly what's correct, which is, do I have millions of dollars to blow here? Or do I have to be very careful about how I spend the money? I think the other thing that is really a hallmark of your work is, your ability to use dissonance in a way that doesn't leap out with a big neon sign, this is dissonant. It's either a grace note or a note that says something very important by being not what you'd expect. I don't know if that is when you talk about your, the way you came to it, if that's Either it's a hard question or stupid one, maybe. Is it intentional? Oh, I know what I'm going to use here. Or is there something that you feel, you know, you have latitude because you haven't come at it with this is right and this is wrong. Another way of saying I don't know what I'm doing. But that's true. You know, asking. But but, uh, no, but it's true. I, um, I, of course, could have studied music theory. Uh, I studied a lot of other things in my life. I sort of chose to work with music at a more intuitive level, you know, coming more from the heart than from the the brain. And uh, I kind of like walled it off early on uh, that way. Of course, over the years, of course, I've learned, I have been forced to learn music theory and I can't orchestrate without knowing a lot about that. Um, But... uh, but yeah, it's the way I hear is the way that I hear. And I'm not trying to, I never learned to, you know, write a Bach chorale. I'm, I never, you know, if you actually went to, through a normal conservatory training, you would learn by basically taking on um, different styles and different periods of music. And 
um, stuff like that. And I, I never did that. I basically, my writing is based upon the things that I've heard in my life that I liked. And if so, so some of my harmonies were probably Bulgarian because I just happen to like some of those Bulgarian, those harmonies, you know, which you would call a dissonance, you know, but the Bulgarians wouldn't, you know, things like that. Um, Ooh, it's, I like that. It's just what I happen to have, you know, how I've trained myself in a way. So uh, we we talked about your your animation and you're in that process and you're you're interested in music and then the '80s come around. You're in, you're playing in bands in the early '80s, right? Yes. Yeah, I mean, not as a profession, as a you know a thing to do at night. In <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. And at what point do the Cohen brothers, who were making their first film, come in contact with you. How does that relationship start? Um, because you both started each other's careers. Yeah, I know. Uh, so I know it's. I try to, you know, young composers come and ask me how to break into the business, and my my story isn't very helpful. But I try to find something helpful in it. It's basically the helpful part is I was out there playing music. In other words. If you wait for someone to call, it's not going to work, but you have to get your work out there. And fortunately, as a musician, it's not that hard. You can go and play, you know, so many places, uh, you know, play in the subway, play on the street, play whatever. And I was playing at CBGBs, spots like that, Mud Club, the places of that period. And uh, someone that I knew through the that scene, he's a bass player. His day job, just like my day job was I was an animator. His day job was he was doing sound editing for television and, and film. And he called me up and said, you know, I, I'm working on this independent film, low-budget independent film, these guys that are our age. And, uh, you know, they need music. They've got no money. I think the kind of stuff you do, because even though I was playing at CBGBs, I would play instrumental music, I, um, you know, if you probably heard it today, you'd say it still sounded a little like me. And uh, he thought maybe that would be appropriate to this first film. Um, and said, I, sh you know, and I said, sure, yeah, why not? So I met Joel and Ethan through Skip, Skip Leavesay, who is still to this day is their sound editor. And um, that's how that came about. And, you know, they were, I guess, interviewing composers, uh, you know, the people who had bankrolled their film, who were largely just like lawyers and, and dentists back in Minneapolis, um, you know, they were hoping that Joel and Ethan would hire people who knew what they were doing. So they they interviewed a lot of other composers. Joel later told me these were the strangest audition interviews he's ever done. Like they interview and audition actors all the time, right? But he found the person, the composer personality the most weird and um <laughs> you know because it'd be things like jan hammer shows up wearing shorts you know and sandals and and uh opens up a briefcase and hands him a contract says here this is what this is the contract you signed it i will i will do your music you know um and it was like a whole bunch of things like that according to joel but in the end uh well, the way it worked was that i saw a reel of their film I didn't have anything to play for them, really. So I went home, spent the weekend just putting together some sketches, brought them in a few days later. And they lived with those for months, I think, while they were cutting and eventually decided that they wanted to go with me. 
Do you wow. remember how you orchestrated those sketches? Did you actually hire players, or did, was it just you? Oh, it was very much just me. It was very much just me. But I was. It was at a time when I. Some of it was piano. I was also doing a lot of tape stuff. So you know, you know, pl- playing tapes backwards and tape loops, and I was doing a lot of synthesizer stuff. So it ranged from. Music that would be more to be you know, the kind of thing you'd expect in a sort of noir thriller like Blood mm-hmm. Simple to stuff that was sort of the opposite. And we used some of the more expected stuff, but in the end, the more of the opposite stuff actually tended to be um, what we they ended up using more of. Like there's a piano, basically repeated piano thing that I wrote that kind of brought a humanity to the to the characters, you know, Joel and Ethan, humanity, you know, warmth of feeling isn't something that that's at the top of their list when they're writing a script. Uh, but, you know, Fran McDormand, when she's in their movies, she brings it and she's in Blood Simple. That was also her first film. She met Joel on that film. They got married. Um, she brings that. And this piano tune kind of brought that too. And as, as we were just sitting around the studio and Ethan would hear me, just playing it, improvising. He'd say, yeah, let's have more of that. And we recorded more and more of that and less and less of the um, synth stuff. But their original concept, I think, was more that it would be the the synth material. But we, a nice thing about them is that they are very willing to try out new things. And um, and the, the score just kind of drifted in that direction. And indeed, our relationship, uh, you know, continued to drift in that direction to where for Miller's Crossing... I kind of wrote a sappy Irish tune, you know, orchestral, you know, tune to go with this very cold, um, brutal movie. But that kind of became part of my job with them is to play the warmer um, side of life. <laughs> We've talked to several composer duos where it's two musician composers working with one director. But when you're working with two directors, how does that differ from when you're working with a solo director do they do they get into battles about you know ideas are they pretty much always on the same page like how do you guys sit into a room and and decide what you're you're gonna do musically when when you have two different directors does that ever come up well um most of the time uh yeah you could safely say it they're on the same page and this is true it's true in pre-production, it's true on the set, and it's true in post-production. They're like, if you're on their set, one of them will go up and talk to one actor, and one goes and talks to another actor, and they're, you know, they get twice as much done in the same amount of time. Mm. Uh, and it, we all assume that uh, that they're on the same page. Now, I have seen times when they disagreed about something musical, uh, but that's rare. But, you know, it does happen, and then we kind of like, we figure it out. Uh, we try this, we try that, and we um, and we figure it out. But um, are, are they but musical? Um, Ethan is, is. Ethan plays, um, you know, guitar. I think he probably sings. He probably plays other instruments too. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if we picked up a violin and played it. You know, he's, he is he is musical. I think Joel doesn't um, play instruments, but you can tell from their movies that they both take music very seriously. It's a you know, the, some of their movies are basically about music, like Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Right. So, or um, um, Inside Lewin Davis. You know, they they grew up listening. To folk music, it's an it's really important to them, and um, 
And one of the things that's important to them about it is the concept of authenticity, you know, as one of the touchstones of folk music. And um, they they take that on. They, you know, like working on, say, True Grit, if I, um, I could play them a hymn that I wrote, and I could play them uh, a hymn that's from an 18th century, um, you know, hymn book and uh they might like them both but the moment i tell them that this one's from an 18th century hymn book now they're really interested because it has an authenticity uh that they just they just love and it sometimes it comes back and bites me but uh <laughs> they that's their that's the way they you know one of the ways they get into music i want to know if after blood simple did you have a moment of feeling like these guys and my relationship to them is my future or was it still, <laughs> was it random for a long time? Well, you know, it, uh, it seemed random then. And they were very, when we were working on blood simple, they were very honest with me in a way that not most, you know, it's not a common thing in, in the film world where they're saying, you know, this movie will probably never come out. You'll probably never get your deferred payment. Don't hold your breath. Uh, and, then it did like after a year it finally did come out it finally like people start rather than looking at it as, as a sort of a an oddly made film noir people started to look at it as an artfully made film noir and uh so then it played at toronto film festival and then it played at new york film festival mm. and um but even then that was i went to see it there and people sat respectfully watched the film but no one was laughing at all the really funny parts because they just weren't used to Joe and Ethan's sense of humor, right? It's a very particular thing to be able to laugh at, you know, a sock sticking out of a wood chipper. And, you know, they're, um, that's a different <laughs> movie, of course, but yes, it's a it's, great scene, but a great scene, but that's their films, even, you know, uh, no country for old men. There's scenes that make you laugh and you can't explain why everything that's going on. It's just horrible, but <laughs> you, um, the way that they distance you from it and their particular, look at it makes you laugh anyway what i was getting at was that um yeah then i saw it uh blood simple months later at a midnight showing and everyone was screaming and everyone's shouting out the lines and everyone you know the reaction is so completely different than at the film festival and then when they got uh the green light to do raising arizona ethan called and said you know we've got this other script uh, you know, it's uh, it's it takes place in the in the West, it's like a Western, but a contemporary Western, and it's go going to be, yeah, it's got it's got to be country. <laughs> it's not gonna, you know, it's just not going to be as hip uh, as you know, Blood Simple. And I don't know. I think you know, you, you might be too groovy for this. What do you think? Uh, and or maybe he said it might not be groovy enough for you. Anyway, I said, well, let me read it, and I just thought it was a fantastic script. I'm just as a piece of literature, I thought it was wonderful. So I felt I had to work on it. I didn't at that point have any plan for doing another film. I thought this is just really, you know, an amazing thing. So yeah, I'll do it. And I, um, and I went out and visited while they were shooting out in Mm -hmm. Scottsdale. And, uh, and so I did that. And I think at that point, once those two films were so different and the scores were so different, I feel like at that point, there was sort of a tacit understanding that probably I was going to keep doing their movies. Uh, and the next film they did is the one where they their choice to hire me was just 
crazy because it was Miller's Crossing and they wanted an orchestral score and they knew perfectly well that I didn't know anything about orchestral music. Just wow. really nothing. And they could have at that point hired anybody, right? They, um, um, you know, they could have hired John Williams to do it, but, uh, but they hired me. And so that's just a test of, you know, loyalty and uh, the fact that they were willing to let me do that means, but yeah, I think, you've yeah. You've over something that I am really eager to know, which is, so they wanted an orchestral score. Did you have to <laughs> yeah. crack open books? Did you say, uh, hire an orchestrator? How do you get to suddenly well, become an orchestral composer if you haven't done it? Well, so I will say part of my personality is I love being thrown in at the deep end of a situation. And that was certainly that. So, um, and they had told me before they went to shoot what they had in mind, just wanted to make sure that it was okay with me that I was going to do this thing. And uh, so while they were away, basically what I did was bought every orchestral score to every piece of orchestral music that I liked or thought might be relevant, just like my, my favorites, you know, so Stravinsky, Penderecki, Brahms, you know, you name it. And I would just listen to it, read the score. Stop, go back, eight bars, re- listen again, you know, just say, oh, this is, what, this is what they do with the French horns. Oh, that's what they do with the English horn. You know, it's like sort of um, teaching myself what I could by listening to stuff I like. It's an entirely pleasurable, you know, experience. It's wonderful. But we also, um, you know, when we did Blood Simple and Raising Arizona, we honestly didn't know what we were doing, even in terms of technically like synchronizing music to picture or anything. Yeah. Um, right. But for Miller's Crossing, it was a grown up movie. We knew it was a you know, bigger budget. We knew, you know, that uh, the investment Fox was making in it, I think it was a negative pickup for Fox that was, we had to do a good job. And so we hired people who knew what they were doing. We hired a music editor for the first time. We hired an orchestrator for the first time. A conductor. When the studio a got involved, though, were they concerned that you didn't, you weren't the orchestra guy? Because there's now you're dealing with the studios. This isn't so independent anymore, and and you're everyone's a little more established now. Was there no, pushback right. with? I didn't get any of that, but you know, those attitudes were around at the time. I forget we maybe we're talking about like eighty seven, eighty eight. Um, I remember um, Danny Elfman was taken to task, you know, often by you'd talk to composers in L.A. and they would, you know, because he was a rock and roller. Um, and I'm, I'm sure Hans experienced this when he started. You know, there there was a, um, a prejudice and a, and a pushback on people who weren't conservatory trained. Um, and I remember when I joined the Musicians Union, I'm in Local 47 in L.A., I couldn't write down that I'm a synthesizer player. Because at the time, synthesizer players were the people who put musicians out of out of work. There was that prejudice. So there were all these things that, that are these prejudices that are locked in time. Um, and I remember them back then. The people I worked with, though, I think we were kind of feeling out. You know, Ethan was helping with this. Like, we don't want a guy who's going to think Carter's an idiot. <laughs> We, you know, if we want someone that's going to help him. So we found this orchestrator, Sonny Kompanik, who basically became my teacher of how fantastic to orchestrate. Fantastic guy. He's a fantastic guy. And he's really sweet. He did, in fact, teach orchestration at NYU. And he was my, basically, teacher. I would look over his shoulder and I'd say, so why did you do this? And why did you do that? And, you know, how can we make this work? And that he's the person that I learned from. Um, you know, we And we hired a conductor then. But right away, I did feel like 
There's something weird about a conductor coming in who's never seen the music before, just st- stepping up on the stage and waving his arms. And um, after that, I started asking Sonny to conduct because he's the one who would put the pencil to the page. And then when I started orchestrating, I also started conducting on Fargo. I think it was the first time I orchestrated and conducted myself because mm. I just felt like, you know, the person who's conducting should be the one who knows the most about the music. Um, yeah. And can get the orchestra to sound that way. I think just before we take a moment to catch our breath and take a break, I love the fact that you've now identified the exact opposite of where we are today, which is if you say you have orchestral training, the director <laughs> say, you know what, we need a guy that uh, has just learned his instrument <laughs> and also has been yeah. doing raves uh, after 4 a.m. who will score <laughs> the film because... They always say, I want this to sound incredibly different. So if you know anything about music, it's just perfect to know, as we all know, (laughs) things just go full circle every different period in filmmaking and in life and in art. So now if you've never done a movie, you are really (laughs) in demand. Uh, so that's right. And I know Robert, you and I have both lived through cycles of everyone wants a synth score, everyone wants an orchestral score, then back to the synth score, then back to the orchestral score. You know, it's like, and, what, yeah. And directors not being clear that now, uh, it's almost indistinguishable. Half of it, right, is, exactly. half of it is orchestra. The orchestra is all sampled, you know, from Abbey Road and from, geez, drums that were recorded on the fox stage and they go well he's who played drums well you know a, a guy in the back room played it on a keyboard from a program and a plug-in uh but it's now it just keeps going i wonder what's next we should be able to predict after our break <laughs> yeah uh yeah good, we're gonna take good. a break that was such a long uh, uh, wind-up to the break there, Robert. Thank you so much. Um, we'll be right back. Much more with Carter Burwell right after this. Let me take it from here, Kenny. Kenny just tossed a break. And now I'm going to take it from here and tell you about more score. You've been hearing us talk about it. Some people might be thinking, I just learned what a podcast is. Now I'm supposed to learn what a Patreon is. What is a Patreon? Matt, can you enlighten us a little bit on the idea of Patreon and why more score is existing today? So Patreon is a website Mm. that basically lets us crowdsource or crowdfund shows. So we can go out and produce podcasts that are extra, that aren't, these aren't something that any sponsorship is paying for. This is something that you, the listeners, you, the fans are helping us create. And because of that, we have a direct line of communication with you and we can hear that the things that you think are worth us going out and pursuing, chasing down interviews with people that are interesting. And of course, we'll be bringing you those we have already uh really interesting guests that have given us um pretty amazing insight into things like the queen's gambit uh carlos you know who turns out was a big fan of our documentary and that was kind of a cool thing that was sweet uh and then um zach and leo from uh cobra kai which is you know we talk about their path going from interns getting people getting us coffee and uh and then uh when we visited chris beck's studio and then going on to score basically one of the most kind of innovative and and uh uh really kind of outlandish in the best way music uh for anything that is happening right now in cobra kai and um and so we're talking to these people that might not ordinarily be in score the podcast you know we have a fairly short season 
Well, that's not an issue anymore because more score is year-round. Crowdsourced and crowdfunded. What I'm wondering is, what if you don't like crowds? Mm, well, this is we 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 have an answer for this. Thank you. You don't ever have to come in contact with anyone. Oh wow! You just you just can hit play on your device and just as soon as you said that to the, five new patrons. I'm telling you, it's a game changer. It's That's a game changer. It's, 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 it know. is anyway. really cool, though, you guys, because if you haven't joined yet, you haven't seen the layout, go go on the app. You don't have to sign up to check out the page. Um, you do have to sign up to check out all of the videos and stuff, but you can see the layout. But there's a mailbox that you can message us directly and say, hey, I have an idea, or maybe you should interview so-and-so. So you're kind of like part of the production team, part of the meeting, you know, you can get throw around some ideas. And um, of course there's also some exclusive merch if you join. Um, so at a certain tier, yeah. you get a t-shirt, another tier, you get a t-shirt and a coffee mug, which the, the mugs are so sweet. I don't even have one yet um, because it's exclusive yeah, to like the patrons. Too, the so you actually can't get it anywhere else. Um, it's produced through them and we can't make it outside yeah. of that. Yeah. Um, I want, they must do that on purpose to, Encourage people. Can't even to do get that. the host. But yeah, anyway, one of those. if you support our show and throw a few extra bucks our way, um, then it's part of our thank you to that. And um, obviously, uh, we appreciate everyone who is helping to make more score possible. We've been so encouraged by the growth of this; it's super exciting. So uh, check it out. And um, yeah, we'll uh, we'll. I think this is the third read that we've done about more score in a yeah, row i don't wear these clothes wearing the same clothes. i don't wear these like every two weeks on the day just for for this read it's see you can kind of blend in a little bit because that's just like a dark colored plain shirt and robert I, maybe you too but the I, hat the hat gives it away for kenny yeah well i'll wear a hat next time i got a couple hundred so you just gotta you know what i'm missing like though a, i think this is a good finale for our three pitches i'm hoping that Included in the merch at some point will be a score baseball because mm. man, I would I'd wear that I would wear that everywhere so that people would say, "Where'd you get that cool hat?" And I'd say, "So have you ever heard of Patreon?" <laughs> and I could do the whole pitch right there. I need my. It'll hat be the too. new now. Everyone's talking about cryptocurrency. Robert's going to be like, "You guys know about Patreon?" That's right. Patreon, <laughs> Patreon dad hats, man. It's the new thing. But no, seriously, we hear everybody and we see your messages when we're out of season. When are you coming back? The season was short and we wanted to come up with a way to have a year round season. And this was a way, you know, there's, there's operating costs of the show. We spend a lot of time doing these things uh, to make them sound great and make them sound professional and, and make content that you guys want to hear. Um, so this is a way to do that, but we need your support and um, we we think you'll really like what we have to offer. And there's a ton of hours uh, already of content. So you're you're already behind if you're not uh, on board. So join now and you'll get everything that we've already done. Plus what's to come, which there's a lot in the hopper. So we'll see you on more score. It's a lot of fun. And uh, and it's just so much fun to have chats with these a lot of these people that are just truly innovating things um very very cool uh more score on patreon patreon.com slash more score or download the patreon app and search more score and we will see you there this is andy grush this is taylor stewart and we are the newton brothers and you are listening to score the podcast let's go back to the show let's do it 
Welcome back to Score the Podcast, presented by Spitfire Audio. We're here with Carter Burwell. Um, Carter, we talked to composers who were on the East Coast, and we often ask, why didn't you move to L.A.? But I was looking on your website, and I think I might have figured out the reason why, <laughs> and it has to do with the movie Airheads. Um, can you just uh, walk us through the the last day of recording oh. <laughs> on Airheads? This as is a an story I don't know. Um, As an East Coaster, I, I don't know if this is any... I mean, I just... Your website is so great. You have a list of every film, and there's like a diary entry. And I was just scrubbing through, picking random films and reading, and I, fa- I came across this story. Tell us about the last day of recording on Airheads. Yeah, that was a good one. That's not the reason that I live on the East Coast, I'll hasten to point out. <laughs> but, uh, yes, that we finished, you know, late. Uh, I don't know, like 2 or 3 a.m., and I... Um, Went back to the hotel. I think I was, I was staying at the Sunset Marquee in um, Hollywood. And uh, really pretty soon after I went to bed, uh, the Northridge earthquake, earthquake hit. And now because I'm an East Coaster, I had never actually felt an earthquake at all before. So I, I didn't know. Yeah, I, well, said, <laughs> but I didn't so know, creepy. is this a regular earthquake or is this a special earthquake? You know, I had no idea how to how to judge. But yeah. as it, as it kept going on, I mean, to me, it seemed subjectively as though it went on and on and on and on. I thought, how long can buildings really stand up, you know, while this is going on? And the the whole city blacked out the, the first like fraction of a second. But um, yeah, I was in a hotel room. I didn't know where anything was. Like I know they tell you you're supposed to get away from the window or the, you know. But it's all blacked out, and I and it's a hotel room, and I really couldn't even remember where any the window or the the mirrors or anything was. So I basically just decided might as well stay in bed. Why like try to wander around? I don't know what I'm doing anyway. And uh, yeah, so that was, <laughs> that was interesting. This is, this is crazy because this, there's no social media. You can't jump on and see like, what are people saying? Or like pull out your phone in bed and look it up or whatever. Like, what do you, <laughs> that's really true. Through your mind or I mean, I'm not so sure this, I'm not sure the cell system would have worked if there was one, but you're right. It was, being in a disaster zone, I was also like in um, downtown New York on nine eleven. Like I've learned now that when you're in a disaster zone, you know the least about what's going on. Um, I went out, you know, in my bathrobe, and I could see that all the water had been thrown out of the pool, and everybody else is wandering around in bathrobes. We all go out onto the street, and someone had a, a car door open with the radio going, and that's how we found out what had wow. happened and, and what the extent was. Wow. Um, and it was the same thing on 9-11. No one had any idea what was going on. It was only a few people maybe had radios in their cars, uh, you know, knew. And um, anyway, it's, yeah, so that was something. Of course, I lived and through you, it. And you had mentioned, too, that like even in the, the days and weeks after that the aftershocks were happening and you're working trying to get this film done people are running out of the building i'm just picturing just oh yeah chaos, like yeah we were doing the film mix and i forget where it was but anyway yeah we're mixing on a stage where you know there is a tall big stage like you have in la we don't have these in new york but you know big stage with all these lighting fixtures up above and the aftershocks would come and people would look up at the lighting fixtures and like and they're shaking and people would just run out and then come back in. So it's, yeah, it was just this constant, um, you know, stress. <laughs> uh, at a certain point, like I you thought. you need more of that I, on a Yeah, film. at a certain point, I thought, I don't need to really be here for this. And uh, um, and I went home. But um, 
But that's not the reason that I don't live on the West Coast. I'm just, uh, you know, I, I like, how should I put it? You know, I'm more in my cultural leanings, more Eurocentric, and uh, I like the old world and um, the, in the way that New York is, you know, it is that way. And the West Coast is, is points more to the, um, to the West and is more of a frontier um, attitude. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I also like, you know, there's so many, I could just go on and on about the things I like about New York. I love that you'd ride in the subway and you're rubbing shoulders with people from all over the world. You know, you're all, you're like all like there together. Whereas in New York, people are in, in LA, people are in cars, you know, and I, I just love the, the the way it's all just mixed up and the cultures are like blocked from block to block you go through these little little, little cultures um uh, yeah it's for a while now i've I've, I've run the new york marathon a few times and you just run through oh. like you go through every borough Five and you borough. run through these yeah bits of brooklyn and queens i would never see otherwise and each one like on one block there's like a korean church choir standing on the street singing and the next block is a polish punk band out there playing and the next block is acidic and you know i just sounds I like did, a Cone brothers movie score i know i know it do does. you listen to music when you're running in the marathon and if oh so, my god i certainly do no i'd be bored to tears uh i could never do it without music well, I think every, it's interesting. Everybody, I think, has their own um, approach to that. For me, kind of trance-type music works for me. So I listen mm. to, to un- Underworld. is basically my perfect band Love for, for running for me. Like, it's just interesting enough, but not too interesting. And it allows me to settle into a <laughs> sort of a trance state. Um, I'm so impressed that you do a marathon. 26.2, is that correct? Something yeah, I'm, like I'm not. At that point, I don't, at the, I'm, I don't get down to that decimal level in my. Uh, but you pull into but, Central yeah. Park and they throw a silver yeah. blanket over you. Yeah, it's oh, yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah, and um, and you see all these other people on stretchers. But no, I um, it's great. I I have to say, it sounds like a weird thing to say, but I really do think it's really enjoyable. Um, I do like it. I totally understand the New York attraction. I I mean, I'm. A New Yorker at heart, and even looking at our pictures right now on Zoom, uh, this is what you see in LA. You see people in cars from the shoulders up, and that's all you see. You just see them through their car <laughs> windows. And in New York, you really do exactly what you say. And I find, as a musician, truly inspiring to have that kind of interaction and have experience of being with people and being in neighborhoods and hearing a korean choir or a polish punk band in la i found when i moved here that separation also kind of defeated a certain organic spontaneity of inspiration so i like that you're still part of that will you come back in after your experience in amagansett are you coming back to the city well, um, yes. I mean, I still have a place in the city, and uh, you know, during the pandemic, I didn't really go in. But you know, I have uh, school age kids. Uh, I have a, you know, I have teenagers, but I also have a ten year old daughter. So, with kids, you basically have to settle into a place where they're going to go to school. So this is where yeah. they go to school. Yeah. But um, but during the summer, uh, I go in, and, and I think as she gets older, we we'll, we can go back and forth more fluidly. Maybe we'll see. I miss the city, I'll be frank. But at a certain point, once I had kids and I had to settle somewhere, settling in Manhattan after having lived there for thirty years, it was starting to feel 
claustrophobic to me. Mm. And I had lived more, you know, a musician life before that. I rented a house at a, a second house in Big Sur and I'd go back and forth between Manhattan and Big Sur. And, and that was nice. like a balanced, weird, a weirdo balanced life to me. But once I couldn't do that anymore, um, I felt I had to choose a, a place with a little more nature than Manhattan. And that's why I came out here. I just got back from there, and uh, it's so different. Carmel feels like Europe. It's it's completely <laughs> different vibe, and it's not very far from L.A. Um, I wanted to – we were talking about the Coen brothers, and the, your relationship with them is unique in that so many composers would love to find the director that they can pair with for this many films. And I'm wondering, at what point in your relationship with them, do you remember feeling like – wow, we have a total second hand. We're, we don't even need to speak anymore. Or are you at that level? Like, what what is your guys' conversation like uh, as you team up for a film? And, and then how do you begin your process with a film for them, say, versus somebody else? Because you, you, you've, you've bonded long enough. It seems like you might have some glue there. Yeah, well, of course, that, that's true. Although, you know, in truth, I, I think you could also say that... Um, it's not like these guys like to sit around and talk and analyze their films. <laughs> so the honest answer is it wasn't that different when we did Blood Simple or Raising Arizona um, than it is now in the sense that they don't really, you know, we go through the film, but they don't sit there and say, oh, I think, you know, this character is this and this is the situation is that. And um, they just really hate to do that. Uh, it's like mm -hmm. pulling teeth. And we only do that if we've got a problem. If we've got, if I've tried like five things and none of them are working for them, then we sit back and say, okay, well, let's talk about what, what's this really about? You know, what's, what's happening? What's really going on here and try to analyze it. And even then, I don't even know how helpful it, it's ever been. They just, if you ever see them being interviewed, you you will see this, and it, it, they just don't like to approach it in that way. Not for me, not for anybody else. Um, and uh, so, <laughs> I think it's more that we just so happen, and it's just this is just chance, or maybe it's skip. Thanks to skip, but we just have very similar sensibilities. You know, we've I studied film in school. I, I so we've seen. You know, we have the, we come from the same background of of film, the films that we love, and um, they're they're well read. And they, you know, one thing you can see in their movies is that they respect they have respect for the meaninglessness of life, and I do too. You know, um, and I think, um, yeah. So in, in many ways, it's just we just happen to see things and see film in in similar ways uh it's um and so indeed we don't actually talk that much about why we're doing stuff you know i i, I love to talk about it. i'm happy to but they really don't <laughs> i like a well quote robert of mentioned yours. you go ahead robert i just I, I like a quote of yours that you and you said you both have the same sensibility that i thought perfectly sums up the really great composers who know this and maybe it's the great filmmakers you said comedy is best played with a straight face and i think the cone brothers do that as filmmakers they don't come in and you of course as a composer underlined scenes that are sort of is is this comedic it's so <laughs> fucking out there and yet the music says this is serious 
But what's happening on screen is so kind of wacky that I'm not sure. And then I, you realize comedy's best played with a straight face. The composer's saying, I'm going to treat this utterly seriously, and you're going to identify the comedy in it uh, as the audience, and it works perfectly. Fargo, for example. that if you were, When I listen to that music away from the film, and it's hard not to attach it to the film, there's a certain melancholy in there. There's a certain kind of, I hate to say it, but it's kind of iciness. You feel the chill. Mm-hmm. And yet what's going on on stage or on film is insanely funny. <laughs> <laughs> but you're not saying, wah, 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 wah. you're saying, yeah, the guy's in the wood chipper. So, <laughs> Well, you know, part of that, I mean, I agree with everything you've said. Part of it is that, you, um, you know, the, for that film, the music is kind of seeing things from the point of view, a lot of the time seeing things from the point of view of Fran's character. And to her, it is sad. Why do people act this way? Why is this going on? It's so, you know, oh, gee, why does this, you know, person get shot in the pack for no reason? Uh, and, um, so that's partly why the melancholy works. Um, but, mm. Um, but you're right. I mean, I'll say, Joel and Ethan have it. They actually have a very strong silliness uh, you know, tendency in in their work. But by playing serious music against some of the silliness, uh, that you know, it it just becomes discomfort. It's a different kind of humor. That's the humor of, of discomfort, and um, uh, I think that's a lot of what the music is is giving you. Yeah. But far be it for me to analyze. <laughs> analyze it too much i mean i just love to know what um you do when you have other directors and i look oh, at a variety of directors and they don't get that and they want you to be on the nose i mean well it's but, yeah it's it's, it's different it's different i you know i'd say that for instance with martin mcdonough who i've worked with several times now his is more a sensibility that's not just dis- dissimilar to joel and ethan's and um it's different but not completely um different uh but then when i do things with todd haynes uh you know todd he'll do films we've we've done things that are outright melodrama uh like mildred pierce um and carol touches on melodrama it's not exactly that but uh and boy to for me that's very hard i have to say i'm i'm fine playing you know, a love theme if someone is about to be killed and I'm fine playing, you know, uh, <laughs> darkness if people are falling in love, but, I, but doing some playing what you're actually seeing on screen and, um, and playing it sincerely is difficult for me. I'll just be honest. Uh, I don't see life that way. And, and, and it's a Todd drags me into these productions, which I'm glad he does. It's great. It's, he stretched me as a composer, but I find that very difficult playing, you know, dark humor, playing irony is very much my natural propensity, and uh, playing sincerity and melodrama. Oh, so so hard for me. But then for so many other composers, I think it's a it's a natural thing for me. It's very hard. Though I also, you and I both know so many composers. I think composers are behind closed doors some of the wackiest and most cynical and you know they have to play that sincerity to keep the gig but you and i both know that when it's off campus 
In fact, I'm always impressed when it's off campus and they don't say, this is crazy. You know what the guy <laughs> wants me to do. And it might be that, you know, they have to tell themselves, I understand what he wants. I'm going to try and score that scene with the puppy and the toaster um, <laughs> with a lot more emotion uh, because that's what they're looking for. But I think that's the hardest thing of all, which is invest those scenes Oh my God. Yeah. With something. Because to be a composer, if you don't have a good sense of humor and you don't have a good sense of cynicism, you'll never survive. <laughs> I, I know. I think that's true. We talked about a lot of films. You've done 90 films. Um, but up until recently, you hadn't done a television series. Um, in, you know, the, obviously TV's changed a lot since when you started composing to now. It's very cinematic and, and it's much like a film at times, but what was there a reason you didn't pivot into TV until uh, the morning show? I think was your first series, um, and or did just did it just not come up? Were you just busy? Like what what was the reason you you made the decision to dive into TV? Well, so the, the simplest answer as to why I didn't do it before is that I just I don't really watch TV, so I wouldn't I don't really understand it as a medium. When I see a film, I usually know right away what I think should be done with the music. I just really do know. And um, I don't have that feeling about television. I don't, especially the open-ended um, series concept, like The Morning Show, where there's no real end. I mean, there's an end to the season, but then it will, you know, the story will continue and it will continue. Um, it's, I just don't really... It's hard for me to get it, and I have to even. I think only by the end of the first season of the morning show did I even begin to really conceive of how maybe to look at it. But um, uh, it's uh, that's hard for me. Um, it's just funny. Joel has. <laughs> I was talking to Joel about it. Joel has a funny thing to say about television, uh, which is you know a movie has a beginning and a middle and an end. And I have to say, when I'm writing, I'm thinking about the end. When I start that movie, I'm thinking about the end, and I've got a plan for how all the thematic material is going to come together at the end. But um, Joel says the television show has a beginning and a middle and a middle and a middle and a middle, and then it just peters out. <laughs> uh, and um, and that's sort of true, and uh, the, it's a different way of looking at things. I I find it... I, I still, I'm working on the second season of the morning show right now, and I think it's going absolutely fine, but that's because I've forgotten. I've just stopped thinking about the end. I just realized it's not a thing. I don't, there's, there is no end, and I'm just like, you know, kind of. It's a different kind it. of vessel. Yeah, it is. I think it, before we let you go, aren't you about to start a picture with just one cone, brother? I actually just finished it. Yes. Oh, you just um, finished it. Yeah, I did. Um, we recorded Macbeth uh, actually in the spring, in the, in the, when it was still very much COVID time. Recorded it in uh, in New York in the in the spring, and I'm not sure. I mean, I think we're assuming it will come out before the end of the year, but I don't know an exact um, distribution schedule. And did you have COVID style recording sessions where it was one at a time kind of thing? No, um, I actually, interestingly, you know, we did. You know, I tried my best to write it for strings because I knew what the recording situation was going to be like. So, if it, string players can wear masks. I did everything I could to write just for strings, but it is Macbeth, and there are the you know there are battle scenes and things, and in the end, I actually mm -hmm. needed brass, so that presented a challenge. Yeah, uh, but we did the brass in their own session, uh, six players, like twelve feet apart, with 
gobos in between them. And, um, and then after they played, no one was allowed in the room for four hours while they, you know, circulated the air and disinfected the place. It was like a hazmat site. But I was so happy we got it done. And you can believe me, those brass players were happy. They probably had a call, you know, in a year. Um, Yeah. um, So, yeah, we, yeah, we just finished it. And actually, it it touches on something we were talking about before the first break, which is we're talking about synths and orchestra and stuff. And one of the things I did in this was to, uh, you know, record uh, Shelley basses um, acoustically, but then put them through distortion uh, devices uh, to distance them a little from the acoustic sound. And I think that's something people are doing a lot these days, or it's a direction, definitely a, a direction that that sound is headed these days as a manipulation. It also makes it clear sound. as I even imagine it, that it's a Macbeth that has a particular emotional point of view that might not just be acoustic and old fashioned, that it's going to that's correct. say, say things that distorting the strings may help an audience understand we're not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. It's a, it's a distorted world. That's right. Is this uh, the first time it's a solo Cohen? That is correct. Um, I think it really is. Um, Ethan has written and produced on his own, I know, but this is the first time Joel's um, yeah, d- directing on his own. Ethan just didn't want to make movies anymore. Are we going to look forward to a headline that says, Cohen Brothers at War over who gets Carter next? <laughs> uh, no, I don't think you are. Uh, Ethan seems very happy uh, doing what he's doing, and um, and I'm not sure what Joel will do after this, uh, but you know, they also have a ton of scripts that they've written over the years that are just sitting you know, on various shelves. Uh, so I hope maybe they get back to some of those because I've read some of them and they're, and they're great. Uh, but I don't know. It's, you know, we're all at an age where you just don't know what's, you know, we we could all retire, but I don't think that's exactly going to happen. But, um, I mean, for instance, Fran, in many ways, her career is taking off as a producer and, uh, and actor. Uh, so yeah, it's, I think it's a wonderfully unpredictable business, right? That's, um, I just don't know. It really is. I mean, you look at her last picture and suddenly she's, you know, the most celebrated leading lady in the business. What a moment to have that happen. And what a great, it is completely unpredictable. It's funny you say we're at an age where I think one of the great revelations of this age is we've always been at that age where you don't know what's going to happen next. <laughs> you just have this fantasy at some point that you have some measure of control, but yeah, it becomes but, clearer uh, and clearer. And I've talked, I, it, going back like t- probably 20 years, I used to talk to Tom Newman about it. Say, so do you think people, do people ever really retire from what we do exactly? And it seems more likely that you're, you know, your unwillingness to put up with, you know, bad behavior goes up and your, you know, people's willingness to put up with your own, like, you know, requirements goes down. And, you know, at some point those curves intersect and you're just not getting calls anymore. And kind of your tolerance like retires you. Yeah. yeah Listen, exactly. I, I had the great good fortune of doing a picture with Ennio Morricone and he made it clear right from the outset that if we were going to give notes, he wasn't interested. And it was sort of <laughs> said, and we went ahead and kind of snuck in a couple 
what do you think about but uh, and it was a great director and huge movie stars and all that and so he was a slightly flexible but it was an interesting way in which was sort of i do what i do i just if there's any lack of clarity on that i'm good let's part (laughs) friends and i thought that's such a great way it's like jan hammer putting the contract down here's the deal take it or leave it so Carter, do you think you would ever like? Do you, or, or do you have any signs of thinking like, man, I've done all these films and I just want to go sit on a beach somewhere? Or are you still getting that excitement like every time you sign up for a project? Well, I do get excited about uh, new projects. That's that's true. And uh, but I will say, last year I was un, un, um, unwillingly uh, unemployed because of the pandemic. And, uh, yeah, so for like nine months, I didn't do anything. And I have to say, I kind of enjoyed sitting on the beach and, you know, just spending the days with my kids. And, um, you know, I'm sure, you, you know, you, every composer you talk to will tell you that the schedules are the hardest thing about the, the job. And that takes you away from your family. It takes you away from the rest of your life. So, um, yeah, I'm, part of me likes that. But I think maybe I'm just going to, like, do that petering out thing instead of <laughs> actually Maybe not. retiring you might have well i mean notes. look at you look at john williams uh, he was done and then oh indiana jones and then now he's connect conducting at the hollywood bowl this summer and it's right. like how in the world is john williams not just like going off to his own island at some point it's just incredible well, to me i don't I, know if we any of us ever have to really in these kind of careers, it's different if you are a roofer and you just can't get up yeah. there anymore or something. I think in these kind of careers... You need to create, yeah. And you don't have to decide. You can say, I'm going to wind it down, but somebody calls up and says, here's an interesting project. You know, it's not like I've absolutely closed the door, never again. So, no, Carter, I, that's right. we will look forward to hearing many, many decades ahead Yes, <laughs> of cool music. And, and and before we go, we always ask: Do you have any plans to do any sort of concert? I mean, you have tons of great scores, and this mm. is the new hot thing. You're right <laughs> in New York City area. There, plenty of venues. You know, I have never really enjoyed taking the music out of the film and and playing it. I, I have done it because people have asked. Um. And uh, it's, it's just not really interesting to me. I, I wrote the music for the film, for the situations of the film. And, uh, yeah, I mean, maybe when I'm retired, uh, it would be something I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> then enjoy Then you'll get doing. to work on it, yeah. But, um, yeah, I'd, I'd much, honestly, I like writing music, and I'd much rather just write some new thing for a concert uh, setting than to just, write, nice. just take the film scores and do them. It's, it's just, honestly, not that interesting to me. So, score fans, hold your cards and letters asking for a night of Carter Burwell music. <laughs> so, it's, it could happen. And I think it'd be a, that's a, I hadn't thought of it, but what a great show. That'd be, I'll tell you why I know it's a great show. Cause I listened to the films of Carter Burwell, which goes up to 2017. There's that great compilation online. And I thought, oh man, this would be an incredible concert. So, someday. Someday we'll get there. But, uh, Carter, it's been amazing talking to you and reconnecting. I finally found out what class you were in at Harvard, which is something I should have known and didn't. But why not ask it on on a podcast? And yeah, enjoy Amagansett. Oh, I will. Thanks. It was, it was really great talking. Yeah. 
Uh, we appreciate it greatly. And a reminder to our listeners, you can follow us. There are a number of ways. Twitter, at Score the Podcast. Instagram, at Score Movie. Facebook, Score a Film Music Documentary. And don't forget to subscribe on Patreon, at More Score. Uh, plenty of extra content you can't get here on the show. Exclusive interviews and exclusive merch. And stick around after the show today. We're going to play you a clip from Spitfire Audio. Uh, so you can hear some of the different sample sounds to help elevate your music. Robert, take it away, man. What a treat. Once again, a genuine maestro joined us this week, and we look forward to hearing, is it called The Tragedy of Macbeth? That is what it is called. We're going to look forward to that, Carter. What a great opportunity to catch up for both of us and Thank for you all so our much. listeners. I appreciate it. Thanks, you guys. Hey, SCORE listeners, we are so grateful for the support of all our friends at Spitfire Audio. They collaborate with people like Hans Zimmer and the Bernard Herrmann Estate to build sample libraries that elevate your music. You're about to hear a musical demo of what that sounds like. And, Robert, and as an exclusive to SCORE the podcast listeners, you can save 25% off your first purchase of Spitfire products with the promo code Score 2021, and you can even use it on this package that we're about to play you a clip from. It's the Hammers package. Check this demo out. Hammer time. Again, just go to Spitfire Audio. Robert said hammer time, and we all started laughing. Uh, <laughs> go to SpitfireAudio.com. Use the promo code SCORE2021. You can save 25% off that Hammers package. Uh, their new package, uh, Solstice, Albion Solstice, which is an, uh, they, that came out last month. Um, tons of new stuff, and go get their free stuff, too. It's awesome, and it's free. Uh, we'll be back in a couple weeks here on Score the Podcast. You guys have a good one.